So we're in this series called Seven Greatest Words of Love, and we've been looking at um, Jesus on the cross. And we started this before Easter, and uh, <clears throat> we've been talking, we talked about forgiveness and how Jesus uh, made the statement, you know, uh, you know, Father, forgive them because they have no clue what they're doing. Uh, and just, you know, as we, as we hear that from Jesus on the cross, it just, it's so powerfully impacting uh, just because of the f- forgiveness that he, that he just, you know, looked, just kind of extended out to us. We talked about love, how he cared about his, how, how he cared about his mother, uh, his earthly mother here, and, and how he, yeah, from the cross, looked down and saw her and, and made sure that she was, would be taken care of. Uh, we talked about substitution on Easter and how Jesus literally substituted himself for us. What, what was made for us to, you know, we were the ones that were guilty. We're the ones that uh, were separated from God, but, but out of God's love, because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to substitute himself for us. Last week, and I want to thank Pat uh, for, for speaking last week, he talked about assurance, having the, the, the assurance of our salvation and what that means and what that looks like and knowing for sure that, uh, you know, that we have salvation. Today we're going to look at humanity. And um, it comes from a verse found in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 29. And we're going to uh, look at the words of, of, of Christ here. Uh, so if you want to turn there with me, turn to John chapter 19. And we're just going to look at two verses and very short verses. And from that, we are going to extract the humanity of, of Jesus and, and how that is very, uh, the, the implications of that, and how that is very powerful to us today in the 21st century. So in verse 28 of John chapter 19, it says this, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, He said, I am thirsty. And it says, A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to His mouth. Now, I don't know if you... Well, let me just say this. I've reached that age where standing around with people and just talking to them, I've reached that age, and I'm very aware of it, we start talking about surgeries and physical ailments and like what's going on with our bodies and how they're breaking down. And, and, then, and then if they're older, if someone's older, I got that to look forward to what they're talking about. You know, like, oh, really? What's that entail? You know? And some of the stuff, I just don't... I don't want to know at all. You know? But I know that... That's going to happen. And some of you have been guinea pigs and it's happened to you, right? And, but anyhow, so have you ever went in, I'm sure many of us have, you go in to do blood work or a surgery or other things and you can't drink for like, it seems like seven days, right? And then you have the procedure and it seems like another seven days before you can eat or drink. Have you ever been to that part where you're just so stinking thirsty Like you're just dying of thirst. And I guarantee you, if I talk about thirst this way for a little bit longer, you guys are going to be super thirsty. It's just how it works, right? We're fine until someone says you can't have anything to drink for a couple days. And you're like, oh, I'm dying of thirst right now. You know, there's something that triggers that. But have you ever been in that situation where you're so thirsty, like especially like after a surgery or something like that, or you're around a loved one, that, that, that has been through it, and all they have are those, <laughs> those little sponge things on a stick, and they like, or they give you an ice chip or something, but there's little sponge things where they're kind of like just dab it in your mouth, and you're like, 
what is that? You know, it's like, I want something to drink. I want to guzzle something. And I'm a big drinker. I don't, I guess I get it from my dad or I don't know how I got it, but I can chug stuff. I mean, when I'm thirst, I'm thirsty talking about this, so we're going to move on. All right. So, but, but, but it's, you know, as we read this, as we read this, Jesus didn't say a whole lot of things. Do you find it interesting that Jesus did not say a whole lot of things from the cross? When it, from his time where he went through all the mock trials, where he was beaten and all these things, and he was hung on a cross, Jesus really didn't say a whole lot. And the things that he did say, like, you know, Father, forgive them. I mean, that's one you kind of you look at and you're like, OK, that's a that's a big one. And you kind of resonate with it because it's the plan of salvation. So it makes sense. But then you get to this one where he says, I'm thirsty. And you're thinking, wow, that's recorded. You know, I'm thirsty, you know, and, and, and you but it's very powerful. And I hope hopefully today you will you will kind of you'll lean into this, too, and see the power, the, the, the powerful implications behind it. So he says, I'm thirsty. Well, there's a couple things by him saying that that it fulfills. Number one, it shows us that Jesus is truly human. Now, I was, as I was putting the slides together, I was trying to reference it back to Jesus was truly human, you know, because that's when he, sta- he stated it back here, which is past tense. But it didn't sound right because I'm thinking, well, he was, I get that he's, that he's in heaven now, but he was truly human. Jesus was truly human. What's that mean for us? Well, and and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this. And this is a concept. This is like a paradox that that is hard for our brains to wrap itself around. And And I'm not assuming that all of us are on the same page with this. Because when we start talking about Jesus being man and God, that is a huge concept. That's hard for us to understand. It's extremely hard to understand. That Jesus was not half God, not half man, but He was truly 100% man, and He was truly 100% God. Now, when you start following that out, that thought process out, maybe you have in the past, maybe not, I don't know. But when you start really following that out, that generates a lot of questions. Okay? For me, it does. So if He was man, then what did that mean? You know, what were the implications of that? Or if He was God, what were the implications of that? You know? You know, when you start talking about he was on the cross, well, uh, you know, he was God, could he have come off the cross? Could he have done this? Could he have done that? People say, well, absolutely not. He couldn't have done this or couldn't have done that. You know, and it's like, but you engage in this philosophical, kind of a philosophical, um, theological uh, discussion that that you come out on the backside, kind of the way you you went into it. You're still kind of like, okay, I'm not sure I grasp that or grasp it all. But the, but, but, but the truth of the matter is, he was truly 100% man, and he was truly 100% God. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 7-8 through 8 on the screen here, if you want to follow along. It says, it said this, instead he emptied himself, meaning that he set aside some of his qualities, okay? When Jesus came to earth, he could no longer be omnipresent. His attribute of being omnipresent, meaning he could be anywhere at, at, at all times. Like right now, Jesus, God is everywhere at the same time right he's here as he is in asia right now but and but to to become human jesus had to set aside some of those things that were given to him so it said he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave which is us taking on the likeness of men and when he had come as a man when he had come as a man in his external form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
Paul is teaching us that Jesus, God, became man, incarnate. He became incarnate. That's what we call incarnate. He became man. He set aside some of his attributes so that he could become one of us. He could become a slave. He could become a man. Very powerful implications. Think about it. If he wouldn't have become man, the plan of salvation wouldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened. He had to become man. He was still 100% man, 100% God. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, here's the thing, and throughout Scripture we see this. I think in Colossians, Paul begins to teach about some of these heresies that begin to crop up. If you have studied church history, uh, you may be familiar with the Apostles' Creed uh, and some of the the Westminster Catechism and uh, uh, some of those creeds and things like that. What happened was, through time, People started generating heresies or things that said, well, God, Jesus really wasn't man. So they would come, the apostles and the uh, individuals like that would come out and develop creeds to say, no, 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 no. This is who he was. This is the truth. And they developed these creeds that said, this is what we believe. This is who he was. This is who he is. And, and, and so it's, these, they would tackle these heresies because that, they would creep up saying, well, Jesus really wasn't fully man, uh, you know, and things like that. So it counters this false belief that Jesus wasn't a real human being. Doceticism is the name for that. Doceticism is a thought or a false teaching that says Jesus' physical body was just an illusion. Doceticism says that Jesus really wasn't human, that it was just some, just some illusion. Okay? Uh, and in, the Greek, it means, in the Greek, they use the word to seem or, or just appeared to be. So, so it, it, it would say, well, it just seemed like Jesus was man. It just seemed like that. It, he appeared to be man, but he really wasn't man. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. God would, you know, doceticism would say God would never become a man. God, the God, would never, ever become a man. He would never become human. He would never lower himself to those standards. And I've said this before, Christianity is the only religion, the only faith system where God becomes human, where God becomes uh, the savior of his people. There's no other religion where the God became human to be and to become the savior of his people. Every other religion, you have to work towards pleasing that God or the God, right? And hopes that, you know, in hope that when you die that you did a good enough job because you really don't know when you're doing it here, but, but it hopes that you do. Christianity is the only religion that says that God became man, that God became one of us, that God became the Savior for His people. Islam preaches doceticism. Islam preaches doceticism in the, in the Quran states and refers to the crucifixion but clearly states that no one killed the true Jesus. They believed in they believe in Jesus. They believe that he was a prophet. They don't believe he was a, the Son of God. Certainly not the Savior. But they clearly reference the crucifixion. But they buy into the doceticism heresy that says he really wasn't human. This God would never do that. You know, no one killed the true Jesus. He was just another prophet. But instead, they killed another person which resembled him. That's a heresy that floated around. That didn't start just X amount of years ago. This is thousands of years. This is one of the heresies that's been preached that says Jesus really wasn't human. When, so it's very powerful when Jesus is on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. Because it's communicating again that Jesus was 
fully human. And that is very key to the, to the plan of salvation. The second thing that it communicates is this. That He truly is the Messiah. That He truly was the Messiah. Over 380 times in the Old Testament, God told Israel in advance that, about this Savior coming into the world to save Israel. Okay? Over 380 prophecies. 380 prophecies in the Old Testament, God's saying, there's a Savior that's coming and this is what's going to happen through these different prophecies. 380 of them. Very specific signs which would indicate the true Savior Messiah. That's why when you read in the New Testament, the big question is, what is the sign? What is the sign? What is the sign? The, the Jews were used to God giving them signs, specific signs and prophecies that would say this is the true Messiah and Savior. Over 380 times in the Old Testament, every single one of them came true. Every single one of them came true. Some of you have read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, A Case for Faith, and those things where he literally goes over these prophecies and how all of these prophecies were fulfilled to the point to say, that's coincidence. That's coincidence that these prophecies were given thousands, uh, 400 years, just a matter of time before Jesus even came to the earth, which we'll talk about a couple of them. Uh, he would be born, this Savior would be born in Bethlehem. He would be taken to Egypt. He would be raised in Nazareth. He would do miracles. He would be raised from the dead. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would uh, be falsely accused but proven innocent. He hung on a cross. He would, this Savior would hang on a cross. This was a prophecy. You do know that this prophecy where it says he hung on a cross was given 100,000, or 100,000, a thousand years before, crucif before the crucifixion execution style was even ever invented by, the Rome, by Rome. So this uh, tortures uh, would gamble for his clothes. Uh, uh, his bones would not be broken. Uh, he would be forsaken by God. He would pray forgiveness of his enemies. He would be buried in a rich man's unused tomb and come back to life three days later. And at this point, all of the, up, up to the cross, almost all of these prophecies were fulfilled except for about two. Number one, the one, of the, one of them was his bones will not be broken. If you remember, uh, uh, Jesus' bones were never broken. Now, what's significant about that? Well, what's significant about it is that during that time when someone would be crucified, the cross was really designed to extend someone's execution, to just let them, just let, uh, as I shared before, let them just kind of, uh, die this torturous, long death, okay? And that's what it did. They, they would end up asphyxiating is, is really how they would die. Their lungs would fill up and they would asphyxiate. Uh, but they would, could go days. They could go days hanging on a cross. And I've said where birds would come and start picking away at them and things like that. But to, to expedite the execution, a lot of times they would come up and break the bones of, of the person on the cross so that it would uh, speed it up if they were hanging there too long, Right? Jesus' bones were never broken. That was a prophecy that his bones would never be broken. The second one is this. He will be given vinegar to drink. Psalm 63. Psalm 69 two says this. Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, you find it interesting. How many of you guys use vinegar? Do you guys use it to wash clothes? You know, <laughs> um, we have a well water, and sometimes we'll use vinegar and other things to get our clothes clean. Something to that effect, okay? 
Uh, you use vinegar for different things. Do you find it odd there would be a jar of vinegar sitting next to the cross? Kind of odd, isn't it? Well, here's the deal with that, which, is kinda, which, which I think is very interesting. Um, soldiers, uh, so soldiers offered him a drink that was called, I, think, I don't know how to pronounce it, Posco, P-O-S-C-A. I'm sure that's not the correct pronunciation. But it was a standard drink for the Roman soldiers. And, every, and it, was, it was their canteen drink. That's what they drank, okay? Now, it was the most popular drink among the poor in uh, Greece and Rome for about around 300 years. And it was a mixture of wine vinegar, sour wine. It's when, it, what, really, what it really was is when wine would start getting old and start going sour, instead of throwing it out, the poor would take it and they would mix it with water and some other things. They would flavor it, they would dilute it with water, and they would flavor it with herbs and things like that. It was very cheap because it was made with spoiled wine. It had a very sour flavor because it was to hide the taste of the water, which was, very, which was bad. The local water was not good at the time. It actually quenched the thirst better than the water that they had. And then lastly, it, was, it had this acidity or something in it that would literally kill off harmful bacteria. So when he says, when we talk about vinegar sitting there, it's literally, it's literally this, this canteen drink, this common drink among people, and, and that's what they offered him. They put it on a sponge, or a, I shouldn't say a sponge, but a hyssop stick, which is very significant. Again, all of this stuff is very significant, and, and sometimes our casual reading misses out on it. The Jews would have picked up on this sign, okay? 1,500 years earlier... The same stick God told Moses to use at the Passover, the hyssop, it was used for cleansing. Uh, 1,500 years earlier, God told, God told Moses, you remember the Passover, remember the plagues? The last one was the, uh, the, the, the death of the firstborn. And what the, the, Jew, the, the Israelites were told at that time was, uh, they would take, a, if you remember the whole story, they would take this little lamb in they would, and, and they would end up killing it and eating it. And they would take the blood of that, and they would literally place it uh, on their door frames. So if I could use a door frame, you know, they would take, and they would do it on, they'd use hyssop, a bunch of hyssop plants, whatever, put them together. And they would put some blood on each side of the door, and then the top. What does that represent? A cross. So what would happen is, with their door frames, they would put blood on, you know, on their door and when the death angel, or whatever you want to call it, God's angel, that, or the God's angel, I guess, that would come that would, and took all the firstborn, if it would see the blood of the lamb, it would pass over, and that family would be spared. You find it interesting that when the lamb of God was hanging on the cross, they offered up to him vinegar on a hyssop stick. The Jews would have picked up on that. The Jews would have seen something. They would have picked up on that and, 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 and would have caught something, understanding that, hey, this goes back to the Passover. Exodus 12.22 says this, Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the, lint, the, um, the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of the house until morning. So when the soldiers lifted up a hyssop stick to Jesus... Every devout Jew instantly knew the, the parallel symbols of what, of what it communicated. So, this whole concept of him being thirsty indicates his humanity. It indicates that he, uh, that, and again, him on the cross, this, you know, 
uh, the things that were happening, that he was the Messiah. And then the next thing is this. It communicates, uh, him on the cross communicates this deep love for us. To think that Jesus went through all of this for you and I. To think that Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, becoming human and taking on our sins, the purest of pure, the holiest of holy, taking on our sins to provide this plan of salvation, screams unconditional love, screams this deep love of, of God to us. All the mock trials that He went through, all the torture, all the blasphemy, all the ridicule, all the things that He experienced communicates this deep love for us. The love that pours out uh, from, this is, uh, from, this, from the cross is just this incredible act of deep love. Romans 5, 7 through 8, Paul says this, For rarely someone will die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare, someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us all. Now, let me just bring this to our 21st century, okay? We have Jesus on the cross. He says, he, the, the words are recorded, I am thirsty. They, they give Him some, some ordinary drink, vinegar, uh, canteen drink, whatever you want to call it, on a hyssop branch. What does that mean for us? How does that, what does that communicate to us? What do, we, what do we gather from the humanity of Jesus? Listen to what Amos says in eight chapter, or chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. It says, hear this, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst, or a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young woman, the young men also, will faint from thirst. What does this mean for you and I? Let me ask you a question. How are you satisfying your heart when it comes to thirst? When it comes to spiritual thirst, how are you satisfying your heart? What are the things that you turn to to satisfy your thirst, your heart, your thirst? Is it money? I mean, and I can stand here and list them all, right? I can stand here and just, uh, as they come to the top, money, relationships, um, material objects, your identity. You're more concerned about your identity. You're more concerned about you being liked. You're more concerned about, you know, people praising you. Are you concerned about, you know, are you more into, how do you quench your thirst? Do you live vicariously through your kids? Um, are you, uh, the, the need to be right, the need to be accepted, your leisure activities, whatever it is. I mean, you name it. We are, I mean, if we took a poll or you guys wrote down things and were very honest and wrote down, man, this is where I struggle. This is where I attempt to, to satisfy the thirst of my heart. This is what I go to. I bet you we would have hundreds of different things that if we were truthfully honest at times, that it's easy for, it, sometimes we catch ourselves going to those things. Maybe not. Maybe you've, maybe you've wrestled with that and you've, got, you've uh, found victory and, and, and um, release from that. But for many of us, we may struggle with, we're, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. And we keep going to things that's not going to provide it. You know, have you erected idols in your backyard? Because that's what they are. They're idols. They're idols in our backyard that we bow down to and worship. I mean, we just bow down to these things. Do we really know what will quench our thirst? Listen to what Psalm 63, 1 says. It says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. 
Guys, what, what is so easy for us to do is we gravitate towards those other things that can become idols within our lives. We're thirsty. And instead of going to God, instead of knowing that God is the one that quenches our thirst, that, that it's the Word of God, it's, it's, it's God's presence within our lives, it's, it's our intimate walk with God that, 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 that quenches our thirst and fulfills what we're truly looking for. Um, everything else is counterfeit. Every single thing else is counterfeit. You guys know that I, that, that I am a licensed counselor in Michigan now, and I'm telling you, I have this discussion with uh, one of my supervisors, and I tell him, you know, and she's a Christian, and I tell her, I said, my, it would be so easy to just do Christian counseling, although I'm a, I, that's the counseling I do, I'm a Christian, I do Christian counseling, but in a world that is so dark, I try to, and this is a challenge of mine, because I just want to say, you know what, I don't want to do this. I want to be in the church more, you know, where I can just overtly and openly speak about God, which you can with other people if they bring it up. But my point is this, do you know how hard it is to have a conversation about God when someone's not spiritual and you can't really go in, or they're not really, they don't have a faith, and you can't really talk overtly about God to say, hey, you're thirsty. You're thirsty. You keep going to these other things. They're not quenching your thirst. Instead, what they're doing is they're hurting your life. You know how hard it is to communicate the gospel, to communicate something in a way that's not overt? And I'm convicted of that. I'm, I'm, I'm pressed in and convicted because I believe that there are people that they need to hear the gospel in some way, shape, or form. But that's extremely hard. We're thir- you, you, we see that. You see that. We're thirsty. Many of us, we, re, we resort to things, and it's like, that's not going to quench our thirst. That wasn't designed to quench our thirst. The, now all we have is a good old-fashioned idol within our lives. And it used to really freak me out when I would get, you know, have, if I have someone come in for counseling, say, like in the world, um, if someone would, I would counsel them, and they're really engaged in some things that I just don't believe in, how do you connect with them? And I begin to understand that it's, it's deeper, and it goes back to the thirst. They're thirsty. They're searching. People are searching, which means when we talk about evangelism, we talk about engage, we talk about outreach, we talk about, hey, who are we having conversations with, the relationships that we're building with people around us. Guys, there are people around you that are dying of thirst. The question becomes, do you, are you able to give them something to drink? Now, again, I know that Jesus is the one that gives them the living water. I'm just saying, are you pointing them in the right direction? Are you able to have a conversation? Are you in the same, cons- or the same um, I won't say paradox, but same kind of like struggle that I'm in? How do you connect with that person to, ha- to, to, to say, you know, man, you're thirsty. And ev- these things over here, is not, they're not filling, they're not quenching your thirst. Everything else is counterfeit. Everything else leads us down this empty road. So what do we do? Number one, or or, or next we realize that Jesus understands our pain. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus gets what we're going through. Jesus gets what we're going through. Some of the things that, that we may be carrying or we've carried into this place right now, right now is very minute. Some of the baggage that we have, some of the heaviness that you guys are experiencing right now within your lives, you do understand that Jesus understands, right? It's not just simply that He knows. 
But he truly understands. He was human. He was human. And he may not have engaged in those things, but he was human for the purpose, you know, for the purpose of salvation, but also to, but that he, as, as, the, as the, the author of Hebrews says, that he can sympathize with us because he understands what it is. Jesus gets what you're going through. His humanity puts him right in your shoes. And he's able to, to provide that, that, that soul-quenching um, uh, water for, for our thirst. The last thing is, we need to stop drinking from the wrong well. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, God says to his people, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And this is where it's so subtle. This is where it's so easy for us to fall into that trap where we begin to look at other things. And it's so easy for us to kind of divert and kind of get away and begin to struggle, get away from God in a sense. And we begin to dig our own wells. We begin to look at those counterfeit things. We begin to immerse ourselves. I wonder how many of us, if we be truly honest with ourselves, that we have things within our lives that is... That is We've got cracked cisterns. We're looking to something that can't fulfill that thirst. We're looking to a counterfeit thing to help us uh, quench that thirst, which it can never happen. Maybe it's time that we realize that we've been going at it on our, on our own terms. That this is where we slipped out of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus and we're kind of taking it on ourselves, which is so easy to do at times. Maybe the reason for your discontent, maybe the reason why we get so restless, maybe the reason why we get so shifty and all these other things, and constantly we're searching for things, stems back because we've attempted to dig our own well. We've attempted to dig our own well and we're trying to drink from something that's not designed for us to ever drink from, and it's never, ever, ever going to fulfill us. Therefore, we're always struggling. We're always constantly struggling with something. We're out of harmony with God. And why is it so hard for us to look at ourselves and take a pause and look at ourselves and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something here that's not... I, I, I'm, I'm digging my own well. I'm trying to draw water from something that can't provide what I'm really truly looking for. And yet we continue to try to get that life-quenching water from a dry well. Here in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to take communion because this is what quenches our thirst. But I want you to listen to the words of... of uh, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and kind of get set. But I want you to, pay, as I close, I want, you to, I want to close with one last verse, and it's on our screen here. It's found in John chapter 4, 13. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. But you've heard the story, I'm sure you've heard the story about the woman at the well, right? She, this woman is at the well. She's an outcast. She's in the, at this well at the middle of the day, scorching hot heat. No one ever came at that time. The only reason why she came at that time because she was an outcast. She didn't want to be ridiculed. Uh, she had failed marriage after marriage after marriage, which was not accepted back in that day like it is today. But she was, she, was, she was searching, man. She was searching. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus, instead of condemning her, instead of, instead of condemning her, instead of turning away, He does what He always did and does now. He breathes dignity into somebody. He, he just gives them love. He just accepts them. He doesn't, he doesn't condone what they're doing. And He always speaks the truth. But He just dumps enormous amounts of value into her. Listen to what he says. He says, everyone who drinks from this water is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him 
will never get thirsty again, ever. He goes on to say, in fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal, eternal life. I wonder how many of us sitting in here this morning, you're thirsty. You're thirsty. Truth be known, you're searching. But where you're searching, it's not quenching your thirst. And Jesus is saying, I've got the living water. I've got the living water. I like the words of the, of the woman when she said, uh, you know, give the, give, I need that because I don't ever want to come back to this well again. She was thinking more of it from a physical aspect. No, but not knowing that she, her life was going to be changed for, for the good. I mean, that whole story is powerful. How she went into that, you know, the town of Samaria and, and um, shared that she had met the Messiah and all these people, and, and, and they believe, they, they believe in, a, in a culture that didn't listen to women. Uh, they, they listened to her, and a woman that was had an outcast on that, they listened to her, and all these, people, all these people come flocking out, and they meet the Messiah, which he then goes into town and, and has an incredible ministry in that town. But she's like, give me that water. I don't want to ever come here again. I wonder how many of us this morning know we're thirsty. You're thirsty. And Jesus is saying, I've got the water. I've got the water. You know, at times we, I think we have a picture of Jesus in our refrigerator, right? A picture of water, a picture of his living water in our refrigerator. And at times we're like, oh, you know what? I think I'll take a drink of that. And we kind of put it back and kind of go about our ways. And then we get thirsty again. We'll come back and take another drink. And we're not really, we're not really sold out, I guess, to the Lordship of Jesus. Maybe today's the day that we say, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of being thirsty. I get that I'm struggling and I don't like it. And so today I just want us, as we participate in communion, as you uh, come here in a few moments, Scott's going to begin to play some music and then um, what I want you to do is I want you to please come up and, and get, your, uh, get your elements, uh, get your juice and your bread and then take it back and then we'll take it together. But if you're thirsty this morning, won't you spend a few moments with God? Spend a few moments with His Spirit, His Holy Spirit that's here right now. Maybe there's some things you need to talk with Him about. Maybe you know why you're thirsty. Maybe you have never drank from the well of living water, and today's the day you're going to receive salvation for the very first time. Spend a few moments in prayer. Spend a few moments in prayer. But what I want you to do when I, I want, I just want you to come, take them, and then and then go back and silently, you know, just spend some time with God. And then we're gonna sing a very fitting song. We'll take communion, or uh, I guess we'll we'll finish the song, and then we'll take communion together. But the song's "Good, Good Father." I want you to reflect on who God is. God that absolutely loves you, a God that has demonstrated his unconditional love in a way that is just absolutely ineffable. But here in just a few moments, would you come? As I take the lids off, would you come and just get your elements and go back to your seat and just worship God as we prepare our hearts to take communion together? Would you do that? As we talked this morning, um, 
Jesus was 100% human, 100% man. And just by him communicating these thirsty has, I think, volumes of implications for us in the 21st century. So this morning, let's, uh, let's, let's eat first. Let's eat the body that was broken for us. So if you would, just take and let's eat, remembering what he did on the cross for us. And then let's drink. And with this, we are acknowledging that this is the living water. Let's celebrate and drink. Jesus, we just give you great thanks for who you are. That instead of letting us roam around dying of thirst, looking for ways to quench a thirst that can never be quenched by anything but you, you provide a way. You sacrificed yourself for us. You fulfilled all kinds of prophecies validating who you are. And we get to stand on this side just receiving just this enormous, your enormous amounts of unconditional love that you give us. We don't deserve it whatsoever. But Father, we, and, we, and I pray that we would never take that for granted. But instead, it w- we would celebrate that. And that we would share your love with others in the world. Others that are thirsty, uh, looking for something to quench their thirst, that we would share the living water with them. Use us. Let, I pray that we would be humble. I pray that we would live in a contrite spirit so that we could be used by you in a way that we could never imagine. Let us Help us to submit to your lordship. And we just pray all this in your most powerful name. Amen.